Well, let's turn in our Bibles then this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 1 to 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we now launch our study in the book of 2 Thessalonians. I anticipate we'll be here for the, about the next 17 weeks as we walk our way through the book. And so that can either grow or shrink, but usually grows by the time we're done as we go through. And so if I was going to put a, a, a word, and we like to do that, we said that First uh, Thessalonians, the, the word for that text was model. They were to be a model church and to model their faith. Here we would say it is is about suffering, about suffering as this church is going to, is under persecution and Paul is going to deal with that in this church. So listen to the inerrant word of God as the Holy Spirit had it written. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecution and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we walk our way through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, we are again grateful for your word that you have given to us in human language. You've given it to us and you have given us the Holy Spirit and therefore you expect us to be able to understand it. And so we pray this morning again that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher, that he would illumine the truths of the word, of your word to us this morning And we might go away having heard the voice of God through the pages of Scripture this morning. I pray you'll give us ears to hear. And I pray that you will give us the ability and the willingness to obey what is laid out for us here this morning. I pray in your name. Amen. If you were looking for a church and you wanted to find a good church, how would you find a good church? What would you be looking for? What is the thing that you would say, what is your priority in a church? What should it look like? What are, the thing, what are some qualities that you think are necessary for a God-pleasing, growing church? Well, for many, they, when they look for a church, they look for programs. They look for some place where they can plug in where they can have programs that they can go to. They want something for their children. They want something for their teenagers. They want something for their young people. They want something for the young adults. They want some for the middle-aged people, something for the seniors, something for in-between. And so they're looking at a church that is 
keeping them busy. Others would say, well, it's, you know, what's really important to me is music. If, if the music's good, then that's a place to go. And so people are looking, well, they've got a fancy building. They publish a lot of material. But truly, what is it that we need to be looking for in a church? Well, Paul here lays out some qualities as he is, his, of what a church should be. And as he praises this, the Thessalonian church, as he writes this letter to them, and as he gives them accommodation before he gives them correction, he really gives us some qualities that we should look for in a church. Some things that are, that, that are vital to a church as we look at that church. And so this morning, we're going to see four qualities in this, in this text as we look at it. And they're really things that we need to recognize are necessary in our church, necessary in any church, so that the church is healthy, so that the church is pleasing to God, and is a church that is worthy of being thanking God for and giving aff- given affirmation. So we'll see, first of all, that there's a need or a recognition. We need to recognize what the church is. What is the church? Is is it just a club? Or is there more to it? And Paul will answer that really in his introduction in verses 1 and 2. And he says, you're in Christ. You're redeemed. Secondly, we will see we need to recognize the need for spiritual growth. Paul will give them affirmation because they are growing in faith and love. In other words, a church that's pleasing to God is a church that recognizes and emphasizes spiritual growth. Second of all, we'll need to have a church that is willing to persevere. Do they change with the times? When things get tough, do they tuck in their horns or are they faithful to what they know to be true? And thirdly, we need to recognize the purpose of suffering. Does the the church itself recognize why God is bringing difficulties into their lives? And Paul will answer that. Actually, it's, it's to make you worthy of the kingdom. Ultimately, it demonstrates that you are his and therefore the kingdom is for you. But before we go into all of those qualities, we want to recognize that as Paul begins this book, he, he again introduces the authors of this book, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Now, we looked at those men when we began First Thessalonians, and we know that Paul is the Apostle Paul. He was the one who was Saul, who was a Pharisee, who was persecuting the church, and he, his conversion is like everyone's conversion. We often think that Paul had a spectacular conversion. His was just demonstrated in a way that was more visible than the rest of ours. Paul was completely against God, completely against the gospel, completely against the church, hated everything about it till God struck him down on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, you're mine. Come, I have a task for you. You will now be my apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul was miraculously saved as God 
changed his direction, gave him new life. The scales fell off his, off his eyes and he went to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Silvanus, we also said, was, a, was a, a person who served with Paul. And again, we said his name is Silas. And so we know him mostly as Silas. And he was Paul's traveling companion on Paul's second missionary journey. After Paul had a falling out with Barnabas, Silas became the man that went with Paul in his missionary journey. Silas is mentioned second here, probably because he's near Paul's age. He would be more a contemporary of Paul. And he will go and serve with Paul in ministry. And then there's Timothy, who we know is Paul's spiritual son. And he's a much younger man who is now serving with Paul in Thessalonica. Now we remember that these men planted the church of Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. He was traveling out, and we see this in Acts chapter 16 and 17. He's on his missionary journey. They come to Thessalonica, and they plant a church there. They are there for three or four weeks in, in the synagogue. They are preaching the gospel till they get kicked out of the synagogue, and then they, they, it appears that they spend a, a, a few more weeks or months there sharing the gospel and, and beginning the church at Thessalonica. And so Paul is there for a short time until they, they again, the, the, the Jews come along and they raise up trouble against him and, they, and they, they make him leave. So Paul then leaves, goes to Berea, and then finally on to Corinth, where he, is minister, well, he will minister there for about a year, year and a half. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to the Corinthians. Uh, wow, I did not know that. He wrote from Corinth, he wrote to the, first, to the Thessalonians, and he wrote 1 Thessalonians after Timothy had traveled back to see how they were doing and had given him a report. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and really we saw that he was writing to, give, to make sure that they recognized that he had not deserted them and that he didn't love them. And he called on them to recognize his character in ministry and how they ministered to them that he was not someone who was just in it for, for himself and then left when things got difficult. And then ultimately he had said that he, he wrote and he wanted to, again, fill in what was missing in their faith. He tried to, again, uh, change their understanding or correct their understanding of what happened at death and, and at the second, what was happening in the future in the day of the Lord. He was also filling in what was lacking in their faith. He said in 3.10, that may complete what is lacking in your faith. And so he wrote 1 Thessalonians to fill in what was lacking in their knowledge and in their practice. Well, it's apparent that as 2 Thessalonians comes along, and he's writing 2 Thessalonians really a couple months after he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And so we're, we're somewhere in 80.50, 80.51. And Paul is writing to the Thessalonians again because he has again received a report and we don't know who gave the report or when they gave the report but Paul receives a report of how the Thessalonians are doing and we would say that after his first letter there was some success because he wanted to fill in for what was lacking in their faith and he wanted to for their love to grow and Paul says actually you're doing good here 
your, your faith is greatly enlarged and your love for each one there is growing. But not everything that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians seemed to have been fully understood and fully taken because he's going to have to readdress again the second coming of the Lord and, and, the, and the taking of the church. And he's going to have to deal with those that he dealt with who were not working and he's going to have to deal with them. So there wasn't, we would say that they took some of the book, but they didn't take all of it. And so Paul is going to address that as we go through this book. And so as Paul writes this book, and as he writes to the, uh, to the Thessalonians, we're going to see that first of all, he talks about persecution. And he's going to talk about their need to, be, to uh, in chapter one really, to deal with their endurance. Uh, the persecution that had started in, in First Thessalonians seemed to either have continued or restarted, and they were under heavy persecution. The heat was being turned up, and so Paul addresses that need. There was still some confusion over the, uh, over the second coming of Christ, and so he had written in First Thessalonians about it, but apparently there was still more confusion and there was more information that needed to be given. There is a false letter that was said to have been from Paul, and it had been given to the Thessalonians with some error in it, saying that the day of the Lord was here already. And so there was confusion in the church. And so Paul writes again to deal with that problem. We would say along with that problem, there were false teachers who said that suffering means the end was present and they had missed it. You're living at the end. And then third... The third thing he must have come to him in the report that came to him was that some people were believing that Jesus was coming any split second. And therefore, since Christ is coming, why would you go to work? Why would you keep, why would you pay your mortgage, right? Christ is coming soon, so let's just relax and wait. I mean, you'd hate to be at work if you could be at home when Christ comes, right? And so there was, uh, again, this laziness and a failure to continue to work in life. And so Paul needed to address that. And so as we come into the first chapter then, Paul will deal with the persecution of the church and its need to persevere under that persecution and then ultimately deal with the other issues as he goes through this book. So as Paul comes in, he gives encouragements to this church and he's giving thanksgiving for this church because he recognizes what God is doing there. And again, as, as he gives those thanksgivings, he also gives us some qualities that we should look for in a church so that we too recognize what, what a church is, what it should be doing so that we can both be that church and make sure that as we, as we look around that we recognize which churches we should be going to and which ones we shouldn't. So the first, the first quality that I want you to see is, is simply this. Or the first thing that we must recognize is simply this. We must recognize what the church is. We must recognize what the church is. Now that sounds almost, come on, pastor. <laughs> 
do you think we're dumb? Like, look at, everybody knows what the church is. But we live in a day and an age where the church has lost its identity. And where people have somehow misunderstood that the church is the place where it's like a community center. And the church is the place where we bring everybody in. And so our biggest thing is to get people into the church so they can hear the gospel. The biggest thing is to draw as many numbers as possible because numbers means programs and numbers means success. And so we use whatever manner we can to get people into the seats. But Paul says, I want you to recognize who you are. I want you to know what the church actually is. It's not a social club. It's not a place where everybody should come and gather and feel comfortable. And your understanding of the church and what it is will under, will. will ultimately decide how you function as a church. Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, okay, and again, we, when we looked at that in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, the word church or the word ecclesia hadn't got the theological meaning. He's saying there's a gathering of people at Thessalonica and here's how we know they're different. We know they're not Jews and we know they're not pagans because they're in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Their identification is that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's, he goes on to say, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's an identification of the people and the true church, and the true church is what? In God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, this introduction here is almost identical to 1 Thessalonians, but you'll notice this little word. He says, God our Father. Now normally Paul will say, God the Father, or the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but rarely does he say, God our Father. It's very rarely that he says that to the believer. So why did he change the the to our hour here? Why did he make this into a pronoun, a plural pronoun? Well, there's an emphasis here. Remember, this church is under persecution. They are in a time of affliction. And maybe now more than any other time, they need to know that they are the subject and the object of a loving father's tender care. In other words, God cares for them because they are in Christ. They are in God the Father. And he says, you're in Christ. You are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is where your life is. This is where you have a shared life with the, an indivisible unity with the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a common life. God has raised you and given you life, and now you exist in the realm and live for him. I don't think that we fully grasp 
what we have as believers. What other religion ever said you're in their deity? You're not in Buddha. You're not in Confucius. Only Christianity says what? You're in Christ. You are in, you have a life. That, that mystery where we now have life and union with God. Again, he's, we would note simply this. He's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he puts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ twice together. Now, we take it for granted, but if a Jew was reading this, there is no doubt in their mind that the construction here makes it absolutely clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is deity. He is equal to the Father. And so Paul says, Here's what the church is. The church is those who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, all those who are in Christ have been brought to salvation by grace and now they live in grace. That grace now extends. Grace doesn't just bring you to salvation. Grace carries you through your whole Christian life. It's grace, grace, grace. In other words, everything that is accomplished in your life comes through the goodness of God and the power of God. And he says, the church is made up of those who, whose life is in Christ and now live by his grace and by his power. And then ultimately, that grace that is extended to you in God brings you peace. Now, we certainly, when we came to salvation, we, we stopped being at enmity with God and we stopped being God's enemy. But here he's saying, listen, now the peace of God rules in your heart. You now have the peace of God that passes understanding. And when the world is all upside down and everything is exactly the way it shouldn't be, there is a settledness in your soul because you know God is in control, that he's a good and loving God who cares for you. And you know your eternal destiny and you know what God has ultimately for you and you simply rest. Nothing can happen to me that's out of his will. Nothing can happen to me that he doesn't know about. Nothing can happen to me that he will not recompense. Nothing can happen to me that I can, that I can prevent in my power. Only he can do it. And so Paul says, if you want to be a pleasing church to God, if you want to have a church that understands and is, is approved by God, a church that's worth praising, it has to be a church that understands that they are living in the grace of God and the power of God, that they are an exclusive community that is set apart in God, that their life is there and this is where they live. And so we are a group of people who are redeemed in Christ, united in the life of Christ, recipients of ongoing grace, genuinely saved. Not like the church of Sardis that was a name, had a name but was dead. Not a church that has programs, not a church that is busy, but a church that is in Christ.
So we gather the redeemed to worship and edify God. And Paul says, this is what a church looks like that's pleasing to God. It's not trying to get big. It's not trying to grow. It's not trying to be flashy. It's not trying to be relevant. It's living a church that understands that they are those who are redeemed in God, living in the grace of God with the peace of God ruling in our hearts. That's going to eliminate our desire to try to build the church our way. It's going to eliminate how we function as a church. Because when we come together in common life and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are celebrating God, and we are not here to be pleasing to, to everyone, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to come together with those who are of like mind. God wants a pure church. He wants a true church, and it is of the redeemed. Well, Paul says, not only do you need to recognize that, that you are what the church is, secondly, as he gives affirmation to this church, you need to recognize the need for spiritual growth. You want to be in a church that is emphasizing spiritual growth. You don't want to be in a church that is all about get out there and bring them in. Now, Certainly we want to spread the gospel and we would never stop that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not out recruiting people as such. That's not our first priority. Our first priority is to, to grow spiritually. You do not want to go to a church that every time you come to it, you feel affirmed. Sorry. You want a church that preaches the word of God, gives you the truth, convicts you of your sin, and calls you to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and conformity to his character. And so recognize, the church must recognize its need to spiritual growth. He says we ought always to give thanks to you to God for you. And again, Paul's thankfulness and, and, and those missionaries that are with him as he writes, as he writes with their approval, we ought to. We literally, we owe. There's a debt here of thanksgiving, a continual debt that must be paid, a continual thanksgiving, an acknowledgement that is due to who? To God, not to the Thessalonians, to God. His primary understanding is that whatever has taken place in the Thessalonians has been a work of God. That is that grace that is working through their life. This is not something because the Thessalonians are special. He says, we ought to give thanks to God for you, brethren. This is not just general gratitude. This is for them, for what God has done in them. Paul thought, Paul recognizes that they're not perfect, but Paul also recognizes the progress that has been made as God has worked in their midst. And he says, here's why we give thanks. It's only fitting, it's only right, it's the right thing to do, why? He says, we give thanks because of your faith. Your faith is greatly enlarged. Your faith has literally grown beyond measure. It was 
It was growth that was entirely beyond natural expectation. And again, you would think that when the church suffered persecution like this at the beginning, that this would be the thing that would undercut the church. That people's faith would be shaken. That they would, they would find that it is beyond their ability to endure. And yet, persecution does not kill the church. It makes the church stronger. And Paul says, your faith, rather than your trust, your growing relationship with God, and rather than it shrinking, it has grown. Your personal confidence and absolute trust, your Godward direction has grown. That gospel that has been given to you is now taking root and producing fruit in your life. It has strengthened their faith. And the missionaries are thankful because their, their faith, right? And this is what they had prayed for. To fill in what was lacking in their faith. And now what? Their faith had grown. And so Paul now gives thanks for a church that is growing spiritually. This is what a church needs to be doing. Growing in faith. In other words, you need a church that is doing two things teaching the Word of God, and then living a life in relationship to the Word of God. And Paul says, what was lacking in your faith is now what being produced. The Word of God has been given to you, and now it is being lived out in your life. The second reason for thanksgiving is because they love each one, because of the love that each one has toward each other. He says, your love is, a, is increasing. It, it is growing. It implies a outward diffusion. The idea here is that their love is flowing out to each other like a, like a flood on irrigated land or, that, or a river that has burst over its banks and is now going all over the place. And he says, we give thanks to each one because your love is what? Going out to each one. Now again, you'll notice in his writing here, his emphasis of, of love for all the brethren and everyone. Each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. In other words, there's no exception to this rule. Each one within the congregation is beginning to demonstrate in an outward manifestation of the love of God in their heart to one another. And it's reciprocal towards one another. You to me, me to you, and so forth all around. There's no partiality. There's no one left out. And no one is not doing it. And he says, your love continues to grow greater. And again, this is an answer to Paul's prayer for them. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. And Paul says, we, we give thanks for you because your love for one another is now being demonstrated even in a greater way. It was good before. Remember, he said, I want you to excel still more. They're excelling still more. 
And so Paul is grateful for the Thessalonian church and he thanks God for them because they are what? They are growing spiritually. The very concern that Paul always had for the church, their sanctification and spiritual growth, and this church is growing. When you're looking for a church, you're looking for a church that is concerned about these things, that are growing in faith and love for one another, and that spiritual growth is emphasized. You've heard it said here many times, God is interested in a holy church. He's interested in a mature church. He's not interested in a big church. God will take care of the numbers, but we are responsible for the growth and the depth of what takes place here at Bowmanville Baptist. And so we must be interested in this. And any church that is more interested in numbers and their growth is numbers, not spiritual growth, you need to walk away from. Because this is God's emphasis for the church, spiritual growth. So Paul has laid out for us two, two things we need to recognize, or two qualities. Recognize what the church is. Recognize the need for spiritual growth. And then recognize the need for perseverance. He says in verse 4, Therefore... We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Therefore, it could be translated so that and indicates the consequence and introduced the state of effect of their growing faith and increasing love that the Thessalonians had on the writers. In other words, Because of your faith and your love, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Now, this is unusual because the the apostles and his men rarely bragged about anything about anybody, especially about their converts in, in this way. Now, he does. But here is Paul adding his voice and saying, we proudly speak of you. Why? Because what God is doing in your presence, it's not our great missionary work, but we are so, we are so grateful and joyful for what God is doing in your presence that we, we proudly point you, other churches to you. In other words, you are now that model in First Thessalonians that we had so desired you to be. Because of your love, because of your faith. He says, we, we love you and we tell about you because of your perseverance in faith. Perseverance designates a hostile action of enemies of the gospel. Affliction relates to the various pressures and painful experiences they had endured because of their faith. And so they were, the Thessalonian church was under fire. Paul had already been kicked out. He couldn't come back. He had to send Timothy. He's now writing a second letter because they are coming after them because of their faith. He says all. Another indicates that the persecution had been numerous and varied 
while the phrase which you endure, the idea is in the present tense, meaning showing that the antagonism that had began in the first book continued. They were continually enduring, continually persecuted, continually under pressure from society. But he says to them, we thank God for your perseverance and faith. In other words, the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ and your faithfulness to that faith is now what makes you persevere. You don't give up the faith. You don't move away from the truth. You don't now compromise in order not to get into trouble. And here is a church that recognized that they had the faith, they had faith in God, they understood what he wanted from them, and far from giving up their faith, they persevered in it. And they continued to do what was right. They continued to do what was required of them. They continued to practice as they had been told to practice. And guess what? They were pleasing to God. And as we look for a church, and if we want to be a church that pleasing, is pleasing to God, we need to be exactly there. We don't change to be relevant. We don't change because society ha- says they're now enlightened and have a better understanding of humanity. God wrote the Bible. God made man. Here's the manual for humanity. And so we must recognize that a church that is pleasing to God perseveres. They don't give up when things get difficult. They continue to stand for the truth, putting their faith in God, and they are faithful to those truths. Paul says this is a church that's worth giving thanksgiving to. This is a church that has qualities that are pleasing to God. And he says this is what a church needs to be. So you see a church that starts to waffle, that starts to now starts to take things that have been so clear for so long and starts to question them and starts to waffle and try to be relevant. That's not a church that's commendable and that's not a church that is pleasing to God. Persevere. Keep living in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the consequences. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. And Paul says, we commend you. We actually hold you up as a model to other churches. We brag about you because we see the power of God working in you as he gives you faith, as he keeps you faithful, as he keeps you persevering. Well, lastly, as Paul comes to the end of this section, he calls us to recognize the reason behind suffering. He says in verse 5, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. Now, there's a couple different points of view on this, and I will, I will give you mine this morning. <laughs> uh, as Paul is writing this, 
the Thessalonians, as they were being persecuted, did not make light make sense in light of the righteous judgment of God. Does God let righteous suffer without punishing their persecutors? Is there an unrighteousness in God for allowing his children to suffer? Well, no. Ultimately, Paul will will lay out here that there is actually a judgment for those who persecute his own. There is a persecution. Some of the Thessalonians... It was a plain indication that God does indeed judge righteously. Something about the Thessalonians was a plain indication that God would judge righteously. How would he do that? Well, the indicator was not the trials themselves, but the response to the trials. Their perseverance and faith provided a solid proof that God was at work within them, enabling them to behave in ways that were opposite to their own natural desires. And Paul says, in essence, God's chase, allowing them to be chastened demonstrates in them that they are God's and that ultimately those who chasten them will be judged. But this chastenment here now prepares them for the kingdom. Now, he doesn't say that they were made worthy, but declared one as worthy. In other words, they have been declared worthy at some point in time. In other words, because they are persecuted, because they are uh, having those come against them, it demonstrates their worthiness. In other words, they were declared worthy, and now they will be able to go into the kingdom. The word is a passive here, so they are not making themselves worthy, but they are demonstrating that they are worthy by continuing to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's unfortunate that many English Bibles have translated as as if it were a future tense, that they have already been declared worthy, but in a future sense, at the time of the millennial kingdom begins, they certainly will be shown to be worthy Their worthiness to participate in the kingdom of God was established well before persecution came upon them. It was established when they placed their faith and trust in Christ, in what Christ did on their behalf by dying on the cross. There is no human effort involved in meriting the kingdom. These believers had outwardly conformed to the inward truth that they indeed are Christ's church-age saints who will eventually rule with Christ. Their response to life trials definitely confirm that they have already have a saving relationship with the Lord. The phrase at the end here, for which, does not mean in order to gain the kingdom, but in name or interest of the kingdom. Their suffering was not in order to gain more merit from before God. Their suffering was because they had already been declared worthy of the kingdom. You are persecuted because you are what? A Christian. The entire discussion also implies that there will be a righteous judgment in the future during which the Thessalonian persecutors will be punished. Putting it all together then, he's saying this. Recognize God's purpose that that suffering comes because you are his. 
when you get into a church that tells you if you're suffering, that's because you lack faith. If you're suffering, it's because God is angry with you. If you're suffering, it's because there's something short in your life. The reality is, for the believer, that is, is a lifestyle. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Suffering is not a, a demonstration of God's disapproval. It is something that he promised you. Leon Morris writes, the New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as do most modern people. To us, it is in itself an evil, something to be avoided at all costs. Now, while the New Testament does not gloss over this aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, suffering is often the means of working out God's eternal purpose. It develops in the sufferer's qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something which may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For him, it is inevitable. He must live out his life and develop his Christian character in a world which is dominated by non-Christian ideas. His faith is not some fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool insulated from all shocks. It is robust. It is to be manifest in the fires of trouble and in the furnace of affliction. And not only is it to be manifest there, but in part, at any rate, it is to be fashioned in such places. The very troubles and affliction which the world heaps on the believer become under God the means of making him what he ought to be. Suffering, when we have come to regard it in this light, is not to be thought of as an evidence that God has forsaken us, but an evidence that God is with us. God brings suffering into our life and he brings persecution in our life to ultimately make us into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and bring us to maturity. And if that is our goal, that we want to be like Christ, first of all, that this should bring us joy. But I want to add just one more layer to that. We know this that our faithfulness here on earth will ultimately determine the quality of life that we have in eternity. We know that there will be rewards that are given out. We know that there will be some that will get in by fire. Some will have all of their works burned up, but some will have reward for those. And each man will receive his, due, his praise from God. But the indication is that there is going to be a difference of, of quality of life even, even in eternity as there is here. And for those who are faithful here, ultimately there will be even more reward and quality of life in eternity. Now, we think about the troubles and the sorrows and the difficulties that we go through in this life and it's hard to imagine that it can be good. But normally God gives us three score and 10. Some of us are cheating that. 
But eternity is a very long time. Eternity is a very long time. And if we're willing to have a perspective like this, then it puts our suffering and persecution in its proper place. Beloved, you want to go to a church that teaches you this. The storm clouds are on the horizon for us here. And if the Lord tarries, the storm is coming. You better have a firm grip on what God intends to do through suffering. And you must ask him to give you a biblical understanding of that. And any church that tells you that God loves you so much that he wants to pinch your cheeks and he just can't wait to serve you is doing you a disservice and they are telling you a lie of Satan. Because this is what God has for us. This is what God's intended way. And so, if we're going to be a church that's pleasing to God, we must give this message. In any church that you go to, in any church that you are want to attend, it must have this quality. It must have a proper understanding of God's purposes in suffering and in persecution. And if we do, and if we take all of these things that Paul has laid out for us and we recognize these qualities, then we too will hear thanksgiving and praise, then we too can have this written about us. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for its clarity. We thank you for its truth. And I pray this morning that again, that we would take these qualities, that we we would examine whether these are qualities that we see as valuable, both in our life and in our church. I pray that you would help us to have a biblical understanding of these and, and the necessity for these qualities to be dear to our heart and exemplified in our life and in our church. And so I pray that you would make Bowmanville Baptist into a church that can be said, we, always, we ought always to give thanks to you for brethren, to God. And may you be pleased in our church, I pray. Amen.